this is going to come as any surprise to you. I don't, I don't think this is like something you're like, what? Um, but our, our world is not in great shape at the moment, is it? What? Yeah, I know, right? What? Uh, it really feels like that. It feels like um, things are, are not going well. Um, the United Nations General Secretary said to the General Assembly this past week that we are gridlocked in global colossal dysfunction. That our world is in peril and it's paralyzed. Feels like pretty alarming words for someone to say. We're gridlocked in global colossal dysfunction. Uh, the next day, the International Monetary Fund chief uh, had kind of said, look, if, if we don't do something soon, uh, there's going to be massive global protests. People are going to be on the streets. It's, it's, it's just going to be pretty bad. And I think I, I read recently that, that 2019 was maybe the last great year for the globalist dream. Um, that was also the year the Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship. So it was, a, it was a pretty peak year in a lot of ways. It was a pretty good year. But uh, obviously in the few years since, you got the pandemic and all that came along with it. You've had massive social division. Uh, you've had, you know, this polarization politically. Now you've got inflation. You've got soaring food costs. You've got Russia invading Ukraine. You've, you've got everything happening in Iran at the moment and, and the mess there. And, and it just kind of goes on and on and on, right? Where it just feels like things are coming apart at the seams. And the challenge for a lot of us, regular everyday people, is that because of our connectivity, we are hyper aware of all of this stuff. And these things really do affect our lives, right? They do. But there's not a whole lot that we can do about them. Like these are really, really big issues and yet we're so hyper aware of them and we become really anxious and we become really distracted. And, and over the last few years, I think so many of us have fallen into this where, where our minds are just consumed with these really, really big issues. But here's, um, here's the truth and, and here's what is unchanging no matter what the circumstances are. God is still on the throne and our mission as his people is still the same. Regardless of political circumstances, economic uh, circumstances, whatever. Regardless of any of that, God is still on the throne. And our mission as his people is still the same. And this morning I want to take us into a couple of stories in Acts uh, that illustrate that. We're, we're, we're going through the book of Acts. We're in Acts 12 and 13 this morning. And uh, so I want to pray and, and then we'll get into it. Lord, I want to I pray that this morning um, that you would be the fire inside my veins as I, as I preach your word. God, that my confidence would be rooted in your word and that you would, uh, that you would use me, Lord, in a way that I could never accomplish on my own to speak to your people and to, to awaken them and to, to give them a greater sense and a greater thirst and a greater desperation even for you today. Holy Spirit, I just I pray that you would be present and working in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts 12, starting in verse 19b. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, I love that name. That's one of my favorite biblical names completely irrelevant to everything else. But after securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace. 
because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms, and he died. Whew. All right. If you were with us last week, uh, or if you listened in later, or if you're listening in online at that, at that point, uh, you'll remember that Herod was a local leader who was particularly passionate about stamping out the church. This was, this was a big goal for him, was to get rid of these leading disciples of Jesus. So he had James one of the kind of the inner core, inner circle of Jesus' disciples. He had James killed. He had arrested a bunch of other followers of Jesus. And now, just recently, he had arrested Peter, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, with the intent of bringing him to trial and, and ultimately executing him. So in terms of human threats to the church in those first, you know, the first decade or two, I think this Herod, Herod Agrippa, was pretty near the top of the list. Like he was really intent on destroying the church as much as he, as he was able to. But what we talked about last week is that what God often does is he takes the intentions of worldly powers and rulers and those who would want to destroy his people. He takes those intentions and he subverts them, turns them upside down, does something different with them. And, and a, good, a good example of this more recently, and it's an example I've used before, but a good example is the church in China. So Mao Zedong, the founder of the People's Republic of China, he, uh, well, he hated the church. He, he, he persecuted it. He, he threw many Christians into jail. His wife actually boasted that in China, Christianity had been dead and buried. This was her big boast. Look what we've accomplished. Except <laughs> she was just a little bit wrong. Because actually, the story of the growth of the church in China in the last 50 to 60 years is the story of maybe the greatest revival in history, where you've got this church that has just exploded. Here's how one writer puts it. He says, God used an evil communist dictator to take the foreign crutches off Chinese Christianity so that it could become an indigenous faith. With its training wheels removed, Christianity in China exploded in ways not seen since the church of the first century. In the flames of persecution, the dross of denominationalism, that kind of dividing over all kinds of smaller things, dross of denominationalism brought by Westerners also burned away, and the Chinese church became unified in suffering. So Mao fully intended on destroying the church. His wife boasted that Christianity was dead and buried, and yet, in fact, God turned that around and used him to do the exact opposite of what he intended and grew the church explosively over this last half a century. And so just like in, in Acts 12, where Herod means to arrest Peter and to, and to kill him and to kind of destroy the church, God uses that to break Peter out of prison and uh, to make his name known, make, make his greatness known, expand the, the reach of the gospel. God takes that intention and he turns it upside down. But sometimes God doesn't just uh, subvert the intentions of these worldly opponents. Sometimes he, he removes that, that obstacle that that adversary represents altogether. 
Uh, he does this sometimes uh, more gently. Uh, in Earlier on in Acts, we read about Saul of Tarsus, who is this zealous Jewish leader who was so convinced that Christians were heretics. And so he went from place to place, trying to round them up, throwing them into prison. He was one of the, these major threats, just like Herod Agrippa. And yet Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, revealed himself to him, and Saul went from being one of the chief persecutors of the church to being the chief proponent of Jesus in the Mediterranean world. God kind of removed this obstacle that the hardness of Saul's heart represented. Now, Herod probably wishes that that would have happened to him because something a little bit worse happened to him. He got, he got struck down because of his pridefulness. So let's look at that story a little bit more. Luke tells us that there was a quarrel between Herod and the people of Tyre and Sidon. Those were two cities on the Mediterranean coast. They were self-governing cities. So Herod wasn't their ruler, but they did depend on the lands that Herod ruled for their food supply. And for whatever reason, which we don't know about, uh, Herod was upset with them. He was angry with them. And so they secure an audience, and it looks like they go into overdrive on flattering him. Because if you've got an egotistical human ruler, flattery is, is a really good way to go. And so, uh, so um, Josephus is a first century historian who also talks about this story. He says, uh, Luke, Luke says that uh, Herod was wearing his royal robes. Josephus tells us those robes were, were bright, bright silver. It was like, like, so, like, like the shine from these robes was brilliant. It was dazzling. And that was probably part of the picture. And then Herod sits on the throne and he starts speaking in his voice, has this authority. And whether they're, they're being authentic or just self-interested posers, uh, the people go, oh, it's, it's a god. It's not actually a human being. Now this in and of itself was not Herod's downfall. Because the same thing actually happens a couple chapters later in Acts 14 to Paul, as, as Saul is then known, and Barnabas. They're in a city called Lystra, and God does some incredible things through them. And all of a sudden the people are like, whoa, it's, it's Zeus and Hermes come down from heaven and they want to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And they're going, what are you guys talking about? They right away direct their attention to God. Right here, let us tell you about the one true God. Herod doesn't do that. And, and maybe you think, well, he didn't really have the opportunity, right? Like maybe Herod would say, God, if you just given me like a second, I, would, I was getting there. It was on the tip of my tongue. I was about to say it. He just didn't give me the chance. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think the intention and the, 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 the implication in the text is that Herod liked this. He, he soaked it up. He wanted people to praise him to bow down to him. His, his heart was twisted and it was corrupt. And so when, when people started heaping this on him, he's going, yeah, 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 give me more, give me more. And so his, his pride, his, his, his pride le leads to his downfall. An angel of the Lord strikes him down. Uh, Luke tells us that he was eaten by worms, which sounds like a particularly embarrassing and, and gross way to go. I feel like of all the ways that I would want to go, eaten by worms is, is fairly low on the list. I'd say it's probably bottom five. <laughs> but uh, it was a, apparently a fairly common way in the ancient world to describe certain ailments, certain deathly ailments, and especially to describe the death of those who really seem to deserve it. So wh whatever that might be, the point isn't that. The point is the end result of this, of this whole episode with Herod. And John Stott, he, uh, he puts it a lot better than me. He says, the chapter opens, Acts 12 opens, 
with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing, it closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Isn't that good? This is great reversal. And, uh, and that, that should give us hope. That whatever, whatever the situation might look like, whatever the world might look like, God is able in a moment to reverse course. However drastic it may look for God's people sometimes, God is able to reverse course. It's never too late. He's able to do this. This is who he is. But I think there's a few other things we could take from this story uh, that we can reflect on. One is, is to go back to the point about pride, that, that it, is, it is pride that leads to Herod's downfall. And this is actually always the case. That whenever, whether, whether it's an individual, regular, everyday person like you or me, uh, kind of going about our everyday lives, or it's an emperor or an empress or whatever, when we, when we start seeking glory for ourselves that actually belongs to God, when we start soaking up praise that actually belongs to him, downfall is inevitable. It's inevitable that, that, that things will, will fall apart. That's just the way the, the world works. You can look at that all the way back in Genesis 11. Genesis 11 is the story of these group of people who say, hey, let's build this massive tower up to the skies. We'll make a name for ourselves. We'll be like gods. Everybody will know us. It'll be wonderful. And God goes, no, that's not going to fly, guys. <laughs> and so the, the, the budding empire is, is, is scattered. The people, the people flee. The, the project is over. I was reading a, a book called Reappearing Church by Mark Sayers. Last week I quoted Disappearing Church. He wrote a sequel, A Reappearing Church. Good news. Uh, and, and there's this quote in there uh, that has always stuck with me. He says that God has inserted a Babel-like kill switch inside of human endeavors without him. Going all the way back to Genesis 11, this is just the way God has kind of wired the world to work. He has inserted a Babel-like kill switch inside of human endeavors without him. If you try to do things on your own without him, soaking up that praise and that glory that belongs to him, you engage this self-destruct button. Things fall apart. It's like Proverbs 16 says, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. It's just the way it works. It's the way it worked with Herod. It's the way it'll work every time, any empire, any country that goes this way. Second thing we see is that this downfall is actually not brought about by the church. So Herod is this great adversary, this great opponent. He's a big threat. He's a big pain in the rear for the church, right? But the church does not seem to make its primary goal getting rid of Herod. It doesn't seem like that's the thing that they feel like, we can't do anything, guys. We can't do anything until we deal with the Herod problem. It just doesn't seem to be something on their radar. Instead, God takes care of this. And I think this is a bit of a contrast in our modern Western church world where there are some Christians who get really wrapped up in the politics thing and kind of think that the church can't prosper or thrive unless we get certain people out of office and other people in. Now, I'm not an opponent of democracy, okay? Like, don't report me to the Washington Post. I, I you know, democracy's great, and, and when I vote, 
uh, people's convictions about, about uh, religious freedom, about freedom of conviction, that's a really, freedom of conscience, that's a really big thing for me. But, but I just think that there's this like imbalance when I look at the early church where they were really focused on the mission and let God take care of some of that like the human adversary stuff. Romans, uh, Romans 12, Paul says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. That's true, I think, you know, person to person. It's also true, this kind of like, when the church is being oppressed, what do we, what do, we do? We're not supposed to take vengeance. That's not our job. You, you, you entrust that to God. Here's a story that maybe kind of illustrates what I mean. I read this story from a missionary so at this point, it's like a fourth-hand story. Take it for what it's worth. But um, there's a city in, in Argentina that was especially, had for a long time, especially been resistant to the good news of Jesus, to the proclamation of the gospel. It was a city where churches just had a really hard time of it. And, uh, and so a bunch of the leaders and, uh, and, the, uh, and, and some of the churches got together and said, let's pray in a focused way for our city, and we're going we're gonna to do this like 11-day evangelistic campaign. We're going to have meetings. We're going to invite people. Really focus in, in, in unity on this. Um, one of the issues in that city was that there was this very prominent devotion to something called San La Muerte, which uh, is Saint Death. That's what that translates at. Uh, so there were all these shrines to Saint Death. There were priests and priestesses to Saint Death. There was this worship of this, of this cult, this idea that if you worship uh, San La Muerte, that, that, uh, that San La Muerte will give you a good death. And so that was kind of a big thing in this city. So, so there was some opposition. There was some real spiritual conflict. The church is praying, 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 getting ready for this evangelistic campaign. About a week before that evangelistic campaign was supposed to start, the high priestess of the San La Muerte cult is smoking in her bed. And all of a sudden, the mattress goes up in flames. The flames consume her, the mattress, and an idol to San La Muerte about 10 feet away. And they don't touch anything else. Uh, so, I don't know. Maybe you're like, that sounds fishy. But I'm just telling you, this is what I read. Okay. Uh, so, so the, that, the evangelistic campaign happens. Some of that opposition is removed. Uh, in the next year, the number of people in that city who are part of gospel-proclaiming churches doubles. The year after that, it's, it's five times as much, 500% growth in the church. And the, and the church didn't need to go out and burn down a whole bunch of shrines and whatever. They didn't have to do that. They prayed, and God kind of took care of the rest and did what he needed to do with those obstacles. I think that's, again, take that for what it's worth, but I think that story illustrates something like we see in Acts 12. And the third thing I, I noticed from this goes back to this general general maxim that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get across, which is that God is still on the throne. That Herod obviously does not have ultimate authority. He seemed like it, right? But he doesn't. And one, you know, whatever God decides, he's done. He's gone. Herod did not have ultimate authority. Caesar did not have ultimate power and authority. His time was limited. Justin Trudeau, Joe Biden, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, none of their power is, is absolute. They, they all have their time and they will fall away. Every empire comes and goes. 
The Babylonian Empire fell. The Greek Empire fell. The Roman Empire fell. The British Empire disintegrated. I think right now we're seeing the unraveling of what we could call the American Empire, American influence in the world. Every empire grows, has its moment, grows prideful, and then falls apart. You know, in Daniel, in Daniel 3, the prophet Daniel interprets this dream that the king of Babylon has. And in this dream, there's this big statue, and the statue is made up of all kinds of different materials, and it, it represents the different kingdoms of the world, of history. And then uh, there is this, this rock that tumbles down, and it destroys the statue. And, and this rock grows into a mountain that fills the earth. And Daniel said, look, that, that rock that becomes a mountain, that's the kingdom of God. All of these other nations and empires, you, you fear them. You think they're so strong, they'll last forever. How can anyone overcome them? But the kingdom of God is what endures forever. Those rise and fall. The kingdom of God goes on and on. So don't fear. Don't fear or grow anxious when you, when you see history changing before you. When you see empires rising and falling and rulers coming and going, don't grow anxious. Because through it all, God is on the throne. And, and history has a direction. It's going somewhere. It's going towards God's kingdom. And, and he's, he's sovereign. He, he's in charge here. God is still on the throne. He's still on the throne. And our mission, is, as his people, is still the same. And to get into that, we're going to go into Acts 12, verses 25 and on. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission... They returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. This is actually, uh, it kind of goes back to something that happens in Acts 11. So Acts 12 is a bit of a, uh, whatever, it's something that, Acts 11 to Acts 13, that's kind of the connection. Uh, and we were actually in this, in this text about six months ago, so obviously you all remember exactly what we talked about, right? What was Acts 11 about? No. Uh, it was about, Ant you guys, come on! It's only six months ago. It was, about, it was about Antioch. We read about the church in Antioch and how this was a church that we would want to emulate in so many ways. Antioch was a major metropolitan center on the Mediterranean coast. It was in what, what is now modern-day Turkey. Major city, very diverse, and the church there was made up of a lot of, uh, of Gentiles. But when these Gentile Christians heard that the Christians in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, were struggling, uh, enduring a famine, they actually sent a gift to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Saul. And so here in, uh, in Acts, at the end of Acts 12, they are now returned from Jerusalem to Antioch. They've given the gift. They've been there. They're coming back, and they're bringing John Mark, whose mother was the, the host of that midnight prayer meeting we talked about last week. So they come back to, to Antioch. Now, I said we were going to talk about how the mission is still the same. But actually, before we get to the mission, I, I want to reflect on the humility that we see in the leaders in Antioch here. Because it's quite a contrast, isn't it? Like Herod, self-destructive pridefulness, 
And, and then you see the church in Antioch, and it's just like an entirely different picture. You see this humility in a bunch of ways. And, and, and if we think about humility, primarily as being taking the attention off ourselves and, and directing it to God. We see that in a bunch of ways. We see, we see humility, actually, even in the diversity of, of leadership at the church in Antioch. We read about five names. Luke gives us five names especially. These are people who served as leaders, who spoke, who taught, who communicated God's word. And uh, Saul and, and Barnabas, these guys are Hellenistic Jews. So they, they were Jewish people who grew up in other parts of the Roman Empire. Saul grew up in Tarsus, which is, is also kind of in, in modern day Turkey, I believe. Uh, and so that, that was Saul and Barnabas. Then you had um, Simeon also called Niger, which in my understanding is, is a Latin word that does mean black. So likely, Simeon has darker skin, perhaps from Africa. Lucius is definitely from Africa. He's from Cyrene, which was a, uh, a city in what is now modern-day Libya in North Africa there. And then you've got Menaean, who, is, uh, who has been brought up with, with Herod the Tetrarch. That's the Herod that cut off John the Baptist's head and had it delivered to him on a platter. Somewhere along the way, these two seem to have uh, had a fork in the road. Hey, they're good childhood friends. The one is now prophesying God's word in Antioch. The other one was decapitating people. So a little bit of a different life path there. But, uh, but all very just diverse backgrounds here, right? None of these people seem to have been from Antioch. They're, from, they're Jewish, they're Gentile, they're from different parts of the world. And, and yet they're here together leading the church in Antioch. And and I think what we see here is, is a genuine, a genuine spirit-driven diversity. See, diversity in our world today is often forced and contrived. You know, companies will have their diversity quota, where they say we got to have 20% of people from this ethnic background, you know, 15% from this ethnic background, and so on. I don't think that's what was going on here in Acts. I think you get diversity like this when you have unity around something that is bigger than your own cultural preferences, than your own identity markers, racial, ethnic identity markers. I think real, genuine uh, diversity comes when you're willing to lay some of those down because you are about a mission that unites us, a mission that is bigger than those, than those identity markers. Do you know what I mean? So that diversity, I think, actually represents something of humility. You also see that humility in their worship. That they're worshiping together as a church. And maybe you go, well, yeah, of course. It's a church. Worship services at church, that's just what we do. But I don't need to tell you that the temptation to pride is something that, that Christian leaders are actually vulnerable to, believe it or not. Especially when you have speaking gifts like these guys do. When there is kind of a visible giftedness, people can heap praise they can put you on a pedestal. They can, they can kind of direct their attention towards you, and it can become addictive. You can start to really want that and depend on that. And, and you can start to think that actually the mission is for my name to be made known and for my influence to increase. And that doesn't go well, as we saw from Herod's life. And so it's so crucial that all of us are people who are continually worshiping, setting our sights on the Lord, directing our attention to him. But it's definitely crucial for leaders 
in the church to recognize that the mission is not my name, my renown. It's something so much greater than that. So their devotion to worship, this, this growing, thriving church with incredibly gifted people whose names ring down through, through history are devoted to taking their attention off themselves and adoring God and praising him and serving him for who he is. We see their humility in, in fasting. And this strikes me especially because I, my perception is that, that fasting is seldom practiced in the church in Canada and the U.S. And, and so on. I think actually for most people, fasting is primarily something that you do before you have like a surgery or a medical test, right? Or it's a fitness term, intermittent fasting. This is the way that you shred some pounds, right? So I have, I have, no, I have no data to actually back this up. I don't, have any, I don't have a statistic, but let's just make one up. I would say that about 72.4% uh, <laughs> of, of Canadian Christians would have more experience with fasting in a secular sense than in an actual biblical sense. What do you think? 72.4, that about right? Maybe something like that. I think most Christians that I know who've grown up in the West, their experience of fasting is, is more secular, whether it's medical or fitness related, than it is biblical. That's not the case for the church in Antioch. What is biblical fasting? Fasting, of course, is abstaining primarily from, from food. Um, biblical fasting, though, is, is, is really, I think, about what we've been talking about. It's about humility. When you look at, at different references to fasting in the Bible, I think that's what you see. So, for example, in uh, Psalm 109, the great King David, ruler over a vast territory, greatest king in Israel's history, he says, But you, sovereign Lord, Help me for your name's sake. I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. My knees give way from fasting. My body is thin and gaunt. See, fasting, you see right there, fasting is a physical representation of a sense of weakness and need for God, a, a sense of insufficiency on our own. Fasting is the physical expression of that, just like baptism is the physical expression of the new life, the death and life that Christ has brought about in us. Fasting is the physical expression of, of that weakness and need for God. That's what David's saying. My body's weak and, and gaunt. I need you, Lord. Daniel, the, the prophet and great government administrator, when he was thought about the desolation of Jerusalem, he says, I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. So he's just sitting in the ashes, wearing ratty clothing, crying out to God, and fasting. Again, representation of that weakness and that need for God. Joel 2, where God speaks through the prophet Joel, he's warning the Israelites of an impending locust plague, and he says to them, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. You see the, the pattern there, right? Fasting is, is all about humility. It's all about this desperation for God to work in ways that we can't. Oftentimes it's because of a crisis. Now you look at Acts 13, it doesn't look like there's any kind of crisis here. It doesn't look like there's any big thing happening. But here's the thing with the church. We're always desperate. We are always, always desperate 
for the Holy Spirit of God to do through us what we could never do on our own. There's never, a, there's never a time where we go, hey, I've got everything I need on my own accord. I don't need God. We can do this on our own. There's never a time for that. Always, we're in this place of desperate need for his power. And, and so I really think in the Western church where we've seen all of this decline, uh, in, in spite of having more resources than like any church in any era ever, more resources, right? We've got flashier, nicer things. But there is this spiritual decline. And I think one of the things we have to rediscover is the church is fasting. I think, I think we have to do that together. I think we have to rediscover what it means to really cry out to the Lord and depend on him for his power at work through us. And I've got some thoughts and ideas about how we might do that as a church in the coming months. But I'd welcome you as well. If you go, hey, I think this would be a great way to, to, to lead us into this more. I, I would welcome conversation about that. We see humility in their sensitivity to God's voice. We read that they're all there. They're, they're praying. They're fasting. And then the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, hey, I want you to set aside Saul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to. And, and we might go, well, how did that work? How did the Holy Spirit speak to them? Maybe it was something audible that they all heard. Most likely, though, I mean, these, we're, we're, we're told that these leaders were prophets. We talked a lot about prophecy in the spring, the spiritual gift uh, of, of being able to hear God's word, his message into a particular situation. And so these, you've got people here who are sensitive to God's voice. They've heard this. It's been tested and discerned and weighed by others who affirm it and say, yes, this is what God is calling us to. But you can only do this you can only be sensitive to God's voice if your attention is not on yourself. If your attention is turned to him, if you are practicing humility. It only works that way. And finally, we see humility in their kingdom-oriented mindset. So there's actually two words for, uh, for sending. In, in this section. So actually in verse 4, if we skip ahead a, a verse, the two of them, Saul and Barnabas, went on their way, were sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. So that word send uh, is a Greek word that has to do with kind of a very active sending. It's, it's like you, you initiate something. The Holy Spirit is initiating and empowering and very actively sending them. In verse 3, we read that the, the leaders in Antioch after they had fasted and prayed, placed their hands on them and sent them off. And it's the same English word, but it's a different Greek word. The Greek word there has to do with more releasing. It has to do with um, something has its own inherent power and, and, and energy, and you're just kind of releasing it, letting it go. So the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit sends, actively sends, the church releases the, the Holy Spirit initiates, the church affirms what the Holy Spirit is doing. The church gives space for the Holy Spirit to do that. See what I mean? Uh, and, and so we, we, in our twistedness of heart, we can kind of resist this a little bit sometimes, can't we? This, this idea that God would send people away from us. Because we become very attached to our own local manifestation of the body of Christ to our own church, our own context, our own city. And, and the idea that God would send somebody to another 
church or another place we see as being a threat. It's, it's like this competition thing, right? It's all about, it's all about the bridge. And if God's going to send people over here, no, we're not, we're not in favor of that. So it takes humility to say it's not about us. It's not about our church. It's not about our particular context. It's about the kingdom of God. And God can do whatever he wants to do. He can send people wherever he wants. We like it when he sends people to us. We also have to be okay if he sends people out from us. It requires humility, and that's what the church in Antioch had. I'm sure they didn't really want to see Saul and Barnabas go. Saul was a little argumentative and contentious. Maybe they were like, yeah, you should really get out of here. But Barnabas was a really nice guy, you know? <laughs> so I think they would have wanted to keep him there. But they have to release them because that's what God is doing. See, in the end, all of this stuff that we've talked about, it all comes back to mission. You get authentic diversity when you are united around a mission that is far bigger than your own cultural preferences. You, uh, when, you, when you worship, you are reminded of a mission that is much greater than just extending your own name and purpose. When you fast, you are reminded of your insufficiency to fulfill this mission. When you hear the Lord's voice, you, you are able to follow his steps in that mission. When, when you empower people, when you have a kingdom-oriented mindset, you allow God to send people where he wants in the mission. See, it all comes back to mission. And, and, and the key in mission, the key in fulfilling the mission that God has for us is humility. Fulfillment of God's mission is not dependent on economic stability. It's not dependent on political circumstances. It's not dependent on flowery preaching or flashy music or clever marketing strategies. The mission of God, if it is dependent on anything in the human realm, it is dependent on our humility, on our desperate thirst and desire for him to work on our surrender to him so that he can work through us. That's what it depends on. Now, what is the mission, actually? That's, I really haven't actually talked about that. There's a verse right in the middle, and maybe you were like, hey, you skipped over verse 24. Is it like a hard verse? Are you just like, are you just like avoiding it? No. In fact, it's an awesome verse. It's like red Smarties. I just saved the best for last. <laughs> verse 24, right in between these two stories. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. That's the mission. The mission is the word of God spreading and flourishing. That's what the mission's always been. Now the word of God, we think of that probably first and foremost as, as the Bible. It is that. Uh, in the New Testament, that word, that language is often used to speak of Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. And, and even more broadly, the word of God is, is everything to do with Jesus. It's, it's who he is. It's, it's what he has done. It's another word, actually, for the gospel. This good news that despite the fact that we are sinners, that Jesus went to the cross. He died. He rose again. That through this we have forgiveness, reconciliation, and redemption. We, we have a relationship with God. We have hope of eternity, all of this is the word of God. It is the good news that in Jesus there is salvation. And what we are called to do as a church is to make, make this known, make the word of God known, make 
Jesus known. That's part of our, our, our whole vision as a church, right? Making Jesus known. That's simply another way of talking about this. Through our words and our deeds, whether individually or together as a church, we want to make Jesus known. That doesn't mean that you have to strike up, a, like, like tell everybody the moment you meet them, the four spiritual laws or anything like that. It just means that everything that we're doing, everything that we're saying, comes from a heart that wants people to know Jesus. That wants Jesus to be made known through us. Again, that's the mission. It always has been. It doesn't change. And here's the thing. When God's people humble themselves, and when they seek the Lord with all their hearts, when they genuinely are desperate for him to move, then the word of God spreads and it flourishes. It did that in the first century when Herod Agrippa was, was killing James and throwing Peter into prison and Saul of Tarsus was going from city to city rampaging and, and, and throwing Christians in prison. He did it in, in the first century when the church was this tiny minority that had originated in the backwater region of the Roman Empire. He caused the word of God to spread and to flourish in that context. He's done it in China recently. In a place where Mao Zedong's wife boasted that Christianity was dead and buried. He's done it in a place where even now the communist government asserts its full influence and power, trying to stamp out the church or at least direct it to its own ends. He has caused the word of God to spread and to flourish. And he can do it here. He can do it here in North Vancouver, at the Bridge Church, in the greater Vancouver, wherever you're coming from, wherever you're listening from, he can do it here as well. He is not, he is not dependent on the favorable circumstances of the world. He can do it right now. All he's asking for is for us to humble ourselves and seek him. If we do that, we will see the word of God spread and flourish here. So to sum this all up, Worship team, you guys can come on up. Sum this all up. In a tumultuous world where so much seems to be falling apart, God is still on the throne. And his mission for us is still the same. And so let us humble ourselves. Let us seek him with all our hearts, crying out to him together. Guys, don't I know I say this all the time, don't do the lukewarm thing. Don't do that whole complacent thing where you just show up to church on a Sunday, you take in a service, you go home, that's it. Like, seek him. Desire him. Let's, let's do life together as a church and genuinely, genuinely be desperate for him to do through us what we couldn't do on our own. And again, we will see the word of God spread and flourish. Lord, I, I cry out to you, because I, I know, Lord, that we can convince ourselves um, through the appearance of things that we're actually doing okay. Whether individually or, or as churches, we can kind of go, well, look, we're better off than other people and other churches, and it's not, it's not so bad. But Lord, the, the mission that you have given us, that the word of God would spread and would flourish and would transform our families and our, our neighborhoods, in our schools and and in every relationship that we that we uh, that we have, Lord, that that you would shine through us and work through us, and 
and that you would pour out your spirit on our church and, and, and just cause it, Lord, to be such an instrument of gospel proclamation in this place. We can't do that on our own. We are so dependent on you, Lord. God, I pray you'd guard us from pride. I pray, Lord, that you would instill in us humility. I pray, Lord, that you would set our eyes on you and what you want to do through us. And we pray, Lord, that we would see the word of God spread and flourish in our day, in our place, in our time, regardless of all that's going on in the world, Lord, because you're still on the throne and your mission is still the same. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.